Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. We are all impressed, or I think we should be, at the speed with which the pharmaceutical companies brought COVID-19 vaccines to market. Yet, that is the exception. Normally, it is a long, winding, expensive, and frustrating road to develop a new drug and make it available to patients. Today, I have two successful researchers to tell us about the agony of developing a new drug. They are Linda Marban, who has been on this program before and is the CEO of a biological research company, Capricor Therapeutics in Los Angeles, California, and Dr. Angelus Turgio, president and CEO of Stellas Life Sciences Group, which is affiliated with Memorial Sloan Kettering Center in New York, where he is located. Linda, where does a new drug begin? Is it a disease looking for a drug? Is it a drug looking for a disease? Is it a researcher in pursuit of both? Yeah, so that uh, sort of defines our careers, doesn't it, as researchers? Um, and I think it's the coalescence of all three, the perfect Venn diagram, really. When you think about it, um, diseases are crying out for therapeutics always. Researchers are in the background at every level uh, looking at um, opportunities to make a difference in how the body responds to something, whether it be at the cellular level, the subcellular level, even at the level of the genetic code. And then there's, of course, um, always um, the opportunity where you have a compound or something that you think might match with the disease uh, that you can take forward. So in sort of total, it's all of those opportunities merging into one great paradigm, which is called drug development. Um, Angelus, we have this feeling that out there, out of sight, uh, but in mind are people working on all diseases and that there's a mutual effort, but that's not in fact the case, is it? Well, I think um, the scientific community in large, I do believe we collaborate uh, quite well together. Obviously, there are research groups that are focused uh, on certain aspects, such as in our case, we work in immunotherapy. There are other groups that work in cardiovascular, other groups that work in other indications. Um, having said that, um, I, I do believe there's obviously, um, you know, uh, um, just like in, in life, we want to assure and, and optimize, um, you know, what we're developing and the discovery that, that we have. And I think Llewellyn, um, one of the things that I think COVID really taught us is to be very humble and, uh, um, and, and really to collaborate uh, with a number of research groups. And I think, you know, the large farmers uh, did that and they came through with the, uh, with the COVID vaccine. So I think um, all in all, um, I do believe that uh, the researchers, uh, we all at the end of the day want to make sure that we get successful and safe uh, uh, treatments out to patients in need. I think that's really what we're all about and that's what, what, you know, that's what our passion is. But obviously there's different groups working on different disease states. But isn't it the case, Angelus, that uh, some drugs are more attractive commercially to pursue than others? A very small disease, for example, doesn't have the same uh, appeal as maybe arthritis or cancer or some or diabetes. Yeah, I think I think you're you're hitting to a very good, very interesting point. Um, a lot of companies, um, as as you may be aware, actually do work in a niche um, rare disease uh, field, 
and, and the rare diseases, I think if it wasn't really for small biotech companies in particular, um, I think we would probably forget about those diseases because large farmers typically uh, tend their attention to, um, uh, to other uh, uh, diseases. I think that's also one of the things that we saw here with the COVID um, uh, vaccine development that the support by the government, philanthropy uh, and other investors um, where we really spent and provided a lot of, um, you know, at the end of the day, economic support to those companies allowed us to come with breakthroughs very, very quickly. I think small companies, especially in their rare disease, uh, certainly do need that support, Llewellyn. Um, and, uh, and I think um, there are some incentives already given. Um, you know, it's something called an orphan drug designation that you, that you typically get where you have some some extra layers of protection on IP and, and, and pricing reimbursement, but it's the in-between of development. To give an example, it takes about 10 to 15 years. Once you discover a molecule, and if you're lucky to get it approved at the end, it takes 10 to 15 years and you've probably spent around $2 billion on average. That was a, uh, um, the average number that, that was published a few years back. So it's, it's a lot of money. And, and I think small companies simply need that support by, by investors, especially working in rare diseases because uh, patients are indeed uh, of need of those, of, of those drugs. And um, Linda, your company, would that classify as a small company? I know it's traded on the NASDAQ as is um, Angelo's company, but yours is a small company, right? Yes, ours is considered um, somewhere around a micro cap to a small size biotech company based on our market cap. And you have a specialty in muscular dystrophy. Is there any other area which you're most associated with? Yeah, so we focus on rare diseases and developing um, biologics primarily for rare diseases. Our cell therapy is farthest along in the clinical development to treat Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a rare disease. And sort of to add on to what um, Angelos just said, a few moments ago, one thing that's really changed drastically, and it was really the HIV AIDS crisis that led this, is that patient voices became loud for these diseases and have driven drug development by dollars and by mandates um, in a way that had never happened in the past. So that is how rare diseases are getting voices. Um, and small companies like mine are well suited to develop therapeutics for rare diseases because um, it doesn't take quite as much money and because of these special designations that you can get, it actually gives a, a much cleaner path forward and sort of leaves the opportunity for those very large public health type issues like cardiovascular disease, for instance, to large pharma. So we developed for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, but are also now focusing our new platform technology, our engineered exosomes um, on monogenic diseases, um, primarily with a rare disease focus. And uh how do you bring a new drug to market? Do you sell it to big pharma? Do you do it yourself? Or are there collaboratives that bring them to market? Who pays for the huge expense of drug testing, of uh, the trials, before it ever is written on a prescription pad and taken over to the pharmacy? Well, you know, it's an interesting um, paradigm. I think there's a lot of political parlance about the cost of prescription drugs um, and how the average person can pay for them. But what most people don't realize and what politicians are fearful to highlight is the cost of drug development. You know, Angelo's just highlighted, and I'll bring to light again, $2 billion from sort of bench to, to commercial bedside, so to speak. And so 
when you factor in those costs, it's very hard uh, to go all the way, whether you're a small company or even a mid-sized company on your own without finding a big pharma partner. Now, typically, once you've demonstrated that your product works, usually those types of partnerships come along. It's beneficial to the small company to find a pharma partner that has an established marketing and distribution network. However, it's also changing now with rare diseases because in a rare disease, you sort of have um, a patient population that is very attuned to what's available, physicians that are a smaller group that um, stay up to date on what is available. And so distribution, marketing, and commercialization by a small company for rare disease is no longer an impossibility and, and something um, every small company considers at least a little bit. Angelos, your specialty is late stage cancer, uh, and your work with Sloan Kettering, which is a very big name in cancer research and treatment. Um, how does that work? What do you do that Sloan Kettering takes from you and who brings it to the patient? And has it reached a stage that you are actually treating patients with uh, discoveries of your company, Stellas? Yeah, it's an excellent question, Luan. So we actually partnered with Memorial Sloan Kettering about seven years ago. And um, so we focus as a company around immunotherapy. So we basically train the body's immune system to recognize and fight uh, tumor associated antigens or, or really cancer cells. And we're focusing on is a target called, called Wilms tumor one. Wilms tumor one, interestingly in the fetal state, um, it's responsible among others for kidney formation. Once we're born, it disappears. And then it comes back again when it causes cancer. So it's a true oncogene and it's overexpressed um, on the surface of many cancer cells, actually about 20 tumor types. And um, so the WT1 gene, um, it acts as an, as an oncogene, as I mentioned. So it initiates proliferation um, of malignant uh, cells. And, and it's important both for prognosis, uh, but also to basically treat the disease. So Memorial Sloan Kettering, um, about 14 years ago, actually, David Scheinberg, who is a, a pioneer in, um, in translational research, especially in, in cancer vaccines, he took the entire WT1 amino acid sequence, hundreds of, of amino acids, and he came up with four peptides, four fragments, if you will, um, uh, um, that basically once administered uh, uh, to a human, it's a, it's a therapeutic cancer vaccine, your immune system now, what's called the CD8 cytotoxic cells and the CD4 helper and memory, they recognize laser focus what those cancer cells look like and they fight them and basically that prolongs remission. So we are now in phase three, the late stage trial for acute myeloid leukemia, uh, particularly as Linda and, and well, you know, we just discussed, it's a rare disease. We're going after patients in second remission who ordinarily Unfortunately, only on average live about three to six months. Our phase two study showed a 21 month median overall survival. So uh, this collaborative effort with Memorial Sloan Kettering, but now in a phase three, um, we're going in studies in Europe, in, in the US. So it costs a lot of money and, and I'm very um, appreciative truly of our investors and shareholders who have been supporting us and, and you know, we don't generate revenue at this point, other than we've done a license deal with a Chinese company um, where we out license the drug and the commercial rights for China, which was very important to us to keep on uh, financing our, our research work on a non-dilutive basis. But, uh, um, you know, um, 
just like Linda, we're a small team and, uh, um, you know, I'm sure just like Linda's team, we have a lot of sleepless nights where we really try to overcome every every obstacle to just keep keep pushing. As I said before, our, our biggest passion is to see ultimately a drug get to the finish line to really save and prolong patients' lives. And obviously with that uh, is also the um, tremendous support and appreciation for our shareholders. Uh, Linda, a lot of uh, all uh, diseases practically have public support groups. Uh, which raised money. How is that money funneled into research? Uh, it would seem to me there are two major or maybe three major sources of research dollars, uh, some coming from foundations, a lot from public subscription, and a lot more from the government in the, through the National Institutes of Health, but not consistently so and not the same uh, attention to every disease perhaps. Where does the money come from? When you talk about your investors and your public companies, both of your companies, you have to keep hope alive for the investors that something will pan out one day and that they will get their money back and hopefully a happy profit as well. So this is kind of where the rubber meets the road, right? Um, and it's um, establishing creative partnerships. Angelos has uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. We have Johns Hopkins and Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, um, where you have capitalized on many decades of work by academicians who have worked their entire careers, perhaps, to elucidate mechanism of action um, of a compound or, or really understand the pathogenesis of a disease. And then we come along, um, usually this is where science and medicine merge with um, discovery and, and industry. And we come along and we take that forward and put it into patients, run the clinical trials, continue to fine tune the science. Our work is more less basic discovery and more product development. So can we make something that was really exciting in an academic lab available commercially? And, and can we meet those you know, qualifications and quantifications to do that? So that money comes from our shareholders. Uh, a lot of that comes from, you know, the investments that are made in our companies. Um, some of us, we've been very lucky to get grants uh, from whether the federal government, uh, the National Institute of Health in California. We're very lucky to have the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, which has funded um, some of our programs and, and other companies' programs if they're cell or gene therapy based. And so, you know, it's kind of a scramble. Um, and you're right, you know, to feed sort of the colloquial beast, which is the investment community, they want research to move fast, and sometimes it doesn't move so fast. So our jobs are to continue to sustain and build excitement around the future of our therapeutics, which is you know, one of the, the best and worst parts of our day jobs. Um, it's also part of my day job, and uh, raising <laughs> funds is no fun. Uh, <laughs> both of you, uh, whoever wants to answer, how do you go about starting a research organization? Do you identify through your own experience something that interests you enormously? How are you diverted into it? And how do you then turn that into a company that can afford to hire people to conduct the research? I think, Linda, um, so for me personally, I, um, you know, I founded Celis about 10, 11 years ago, and this is the second company that, that, that I founded. And, and sort of at the beginning, you know, you have a dream and the vision and passion, as I said before. And, um, you know, you wear multiple hats, not just two or three, you wear many, many, many. And, you know, 
parts uh, we still do, right, Linda? And uh, um, and and you really, as I said, you 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 have that passion. And in my case, I've been working in the cancer immuno cancer vaccine immunotherapy space for the last, I'd say, fourteen years. So there is obviously great uh, degree of expertise there. And uh, sort of like Ocean's Eleven, when I founded Cellas, I brought in people that I worked with in in, in my previous lives, if you will, um, who I trust and 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 vice versa. And we were able to. Uh, to push to push this forward initially with small seeds, you know, I put um, a lot of capital into the organization, and uh, and then we sort of you know got going, and and you know we brought Memorial Sloan Kettering in, um, but I think perhaps one one additional token, if I if I may, and to your to your previous question um, on, on on the pricing and reimbursement and, and the whole COVID piece, I think Linda alluded to that the shareholders and rightfully so, they would like to see things progress much quicker and to get the results today, not tomorrow, today. Um, I think one of the things, and not talking too much about COVID, but one of the things that, that unfortunately has happened with COVID is also the fact that um, a lot of research centers uh, um, actually deployed their uh, resources and rightfully so towards COVID. So a lot of participants in clinical trials were not able to get enrolled. There was a lot of delay. And I think I'm just worried that the aftermath of COVID, quite frankly, um, will actually be quite horrendous. Number one, that we may have delayed um, uh, um, uh, potentially life-saving drugs approved much later than, uh, um, uh, than, than, than otherwise. And then, and then secondly, um, I think what's also um, uh, very worrisome, quite frankly, um, and I'll, I'll pause in a second, uh, is the fact that because of COVID, um, a lot of patients have been either uh, misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed because they were not able to go in for screening from PSA for prostate or for uh, mammograms for breast cancer and, and, and so forth. So I'm, I'm worried that right now, um, I, um, I think we're sort of, if you will, in, in, in a lull period where um, insurance companies may not be spending a lot of money because a lot of patients have not gone to the clinics. And I think um, as, as 21 progresses and people get vaccinated, I'm afraid that more advanced disease patients will go to the clinic um, and that and the aftermath there, both budgetary and as well as uh, from a health perspective will be will be quite devastating. So uh, um, yeah, I think it's it's the passion, but we also face reality such as COVID where you then really need to be um, flexible and adaptable. And I work as a volunteer in chronic fatigue syndrome, formerly known as myalgic encephalomyelitis. And one of the complaints there from the government, from NIH, is there are not enough good requests for money. Sure. Among those doing the research, they say that they are ignored by NIH and they have excellent ideas, they just need to have them funded. Is this a common situation? Absolutely. So. Look, the National Institutes of Health, um, their granting programs are uh, mediated by peer review, which you want theoretically and practically. But a lot of those people sit in their ivory towers and pontificate rather than get on the ground and develop therapeutics for today. So, you know, the opposite of perfect is good enough. And sometimes with a therapeutic, it's good enough. And it is really hard to, to get that NIH funding. They've done a great job over the past, I guess, uh, 20 years or so with their SBIR programs, which helps small businesses. We got several of those in our early iterations and really catapulted our therapy forward. Um, but certainly, um, it's very difficult sometimes with some of these more um, 
arcane type uh, situations to get uh, the appropriate funding. Um, <clears throat> Angelus, after you've got a drug, after you're satisfied you've got it right, that it works, along comes the Food and Drug Administration, the dread FDA. I know Linda has written and talked about this, and I'm going to ask Linda to speak in a moment, but what is your experience with the FDA, and how, if at all, would you like to see it reformed? Yeah, I think the uh, I have the utmost respect for the FDA, as I do for all health authorities, um, you know, such as the EMA in, in, in Europe. Um, I think my experience with the FDA has been one of partnership where they guide. Um, I think, um, you know, one has to be cautious and careful how to interpret uh, recommendations by the agency. Um, as I like to tell my team, you know, there's one thing if they tell you we strongly recommend, suggest, or we uh, we request and 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 and, and so forth. Um, I think one, you know, it's 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 a partnership. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the FDA can do only so much, and they will provide some guidance. And I think it's it's really up to the team with the collective expertise to set up the correct trial design, the, the statistical design, and so forth, and um, and really get everything right. Well, and I think a lot of companies. Um, I think Linda will probably agree with me that they may have really astonishing phase three results, clinical results, but they may have been lacking along the lines of how they manufacture the drug and they may have missed out uh, uh, certain other things. You know, pricing reimbursement is one thing that I've seen a lot of companies wait till the last minute. And again, I, I hate to use COVID as an example, but uh, um, insurance companies now for innovative drugs, I think it's going to become more difficult to get the sort of pricing reimbursement that you would have probably gotten two years ago pre-COVID. -pre so I think FDA, uh, um, what I would like to see is really more real world evidence to be put into, 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 uh, into clinical development. So the phase three registrational studies is one thing, but I think real world evidence where you actually go out to the field and provide it to patients in, in large um, should be something that the FDA should be looking at and they, they are already, but much more carefully for drug approval, which would also um, expedite um, innovative drug uh, development and approvals. Linda, you have the floor. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, um, it's very interesting interest, uh, listening to Angelos because oncology, of course, has always, um, for whatever reason, and, and the regulatory pathways sort of had favored nation status. Um, it's typically easier. And one of the reasons is because the diseases um, are so draconian um, that you really can bang against natural history and, and anything that you do that's better than that is, is considered a win. Um, it's a little more obtuse sometimes when you're developing therapeutics outside of the oncology space. Our experience with FDA has overall been positive. We have RMAT designation stands for Regenerative Medicine Advanced Therapies. It's the breakthrough designation for cell and gene therapies, part of 21st century cures. It has provided us with sort of um, more rarefied and um, directed um, working with the FDA, you know, collaboration with the FDA, which has been very, very helpful. What I will say, you know, and of course, um, every organization uh, can use improvement at any level is that drug development and therefore approval has become relatively formulaic. So the human factor has been taken out of it um, in a large way. So statistics drives everything, right? But statistics don't necessarily tell the whole story all the time. So you can have something that's statistically significant, but the clinical meaningfulness of that drug is, is very low. 
um, but you can get it approved, but, or you can have something that because there's heterogeneity in the patient population may not achieve statistical significance, but may be clinically very meaningful to patients. And so I think the FDA um, has a responsibility to start exploring other ways of determining the metric of success for um, a therapeutic or a drug in development uh, so that we can move things faster into patients on a large scale basis, of course, maintaining a rigorous standard of safety, which was by the way, why FDA was established was safety. Well, safety is a very good issue. And uh, one of the things there is of course that even after drugs are approved and marketed, suddenly there are court cases, there are unexpected uh, health consequences, uh, uh, contraindications from a drug and sometimes they're health threatening. And sometimes of course, in the worst of all examples, thalidomide, they're truly terrible. Uh, how do we guard against uh, things going wrong? And how do you, how wide a field do you have to open up of examination of possible ill effects from a drug? Yeah, so, I mean, look, this is the conundrum that we face um, all the time, which is the more people that are exposed to any type of a compound, the greater the risk that um, something will disagree with somebody in a very draconian way or some group of somebody's, right? You know, if they have a certain um, physiologic characteristic, not even path pathologic, just physiologic, but it just doesn't sit well with them. My personal belief is the way to manage that is once you've done the clinical studies to demonstrate efficacy, your stuff works and seems safe in your patient populations, you do something called a phase four study, which is, you know, you continue to follow patients, you continue to observe them and you look to make sure that they are safe once you get to, to marketing of the compound and obviously can make manifestation um, adjustments uh, should those be necessary. But there's no, there's no perfect way to do this, sadly. Yeah, I think one of the things to also watch out for, I think, is also the type of drug that it is. I mean, if you know that the drug is cytotoxic, for example, I think you're going to take complete different measures versus, like in our case, we have a peptide vaccine, which uh, um, is, is a much safer um, drug and a much safer approach. So I think, I think there, are, there are guidelines from the preclinical work that we need to do. We do dose escalation. We follow patients for a very long time. We have to expose patients for a very long time. Uh, but but yes, there's no no perfect world, quite frankly. I mean, that's why we do those those long follow-ups, as Linda alluded to, with with a phase force. But but we do what what is possible, quite frankly. Um, and, and and I think it's also important for for patients to realize that uh, once a drug gets approved, it has gone through a rigorous development process. Certainly in the U.S. and Europe, I think those are the two continents that that you know I would just like to focus on. Uh, what about off drug uses? Should there be a research discipline at looking for alternative uses for established drugs? Well, that's a whole field. I mean, there are many, many companies and huge success stories, both financially and also therapeutically, where um, a compound that was on the shelf because it failed in one indication becomes extraordinarily successful um, in another indication. And so, um, you know, we can never sort of regard something that doesn't work as gone and forgotten. I thank you both very much for coming on the program. That's our show for today. Thank you for coming along. Uh, please relax, but do wear your mask. We're not out of the jungle yet, although there is some thinning of the trees. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.